If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. Love great stories well told? Visit audioiron.com to find the best in audio fiction. Chapter 22. That night they stopped at a bustling inn near Bodmin. Corwin, Matty and the baby were put in one room, while Norfolk and Black were assigned another. Ben and Aubrey took a third and the crew posted watch outside. In the early hours of the morning, unable to sleep, Corwin left her bed and ascended the stairs to find Norfolk and Black playing cards at a rough-hewn table, mugs of ale before them. Adam stood with his back to the door. When Black saw her, he rose and ambled toward her. Is it your custom to frequent tap rooms at two in the morning? I can't believe you are real. Corwin brought her hand to his lips. My lady, rest your mind. Norfolk's probably not much of a match. He is a wealthy bully who has had his wait too long. There are thousands of well-bred brutes like him in the islands. I've bested his kind before. How can I repay you for this? This is all my fault. The debt is all on my side. I have injured you in a hundred ways and there is nothing I can do to set it all right. But, as you say... I must look to the future and not the past. Black brought a finger along her cheek and lightning ran down her spine. This is such a touching little scene. Norfolk turned to lay his legs along the bench and he put his back against the wall. He spoke to Corwin with a feral grin. How you will weep when Lord Black and Lord Chase are both in their graves and I have stripped your son from you. Black looked at him, then turned back to Corwin. He shook his head. Pay no attention. I am beating him rather badly at cards. I have his marker for several hundred pounds already. Corwin's hand came to Black's chest. Then as if it had a will of its own, it followed the curve of his neck to caress his hair. She pulled his head down until his lips met hers. Touching him, embracing him, was holding heaven in her arms. He broke the kiss and took a step away. To bed with you. It is late and we have a long ride ahead. The next day found Corwin, Matty, Ben and the baby jostling in a coach toward London. A light rain made the air uncomfortably damp but thankfully the roads remained passable. Tell me now how Lord Black came to father your child, said Ben. His was sullen, red-eyed, and feverish. It is a very long story. You were aboard the Albatross and somehow he found you. Should she tell the truth? She would have to. She could not bear to lie to him after all he had been through. He chased the vessel, it broke up in a storm. The crew abandoned me below. He rescued me and held me captive. In the weeks that followed I shared his bed. In Port Royal I ran away and was captured by Dujols. He was a slave trader. Who tried to sell you to a Spanish alcalde? Devon killed Dujols who had badly beaten me. He took me to an island and cared for me until I was well. Then when I knew I was to have a child his shipmates helped me to come home. I suffered the agonies of hell when I thought you were dead. And when I received your message I went mad. I gave up my commission and I searched for you. I was told an alcalde had purchased you. I went to him, demanded you and became a slave and worse. 
Devon Black has destroyed us. The idea seemed to trouble him. It is Lord Norfolk who has destroyed us. He pressed his dishonorable intentions upon me, said he would destroy you if I did not comply with his wishes, and waged war on Lord Black who he thought to be my lover. I went to Black for help, thinking to make common cause with a mutual enemy, and thereby put his head in a hangman's noose. Do not defend him, I know what the Earl of Kettering is. I know all about men like him. A liar. A cheat. A murderer. He uses women and bends men to his will. If you say such things, you do not know him at all. He has been a slave my lord. He has been ripped to shreds by a lash, starved, beaten, and stolen from. He has fought back to regain what was taken. He has certainly sinned and been sinned against. As have we all in these many long months. But this is not our time to think of the past. We must imagine ten thousand tomorrows. Corwin handed the baby to Matty and reached forward to brush her hands across Ben's face. How hot he was, and how thin. This journey might well be the end of him. Cannot you see we must let go of the past to move forward? Ben buried his face in his hands. It will never be behind me. You have no idea what I have seen or what I have lost. Why do you not tell me? Corwin asked, then glanced at Matty. Tell us, who love you best, what has happened to you? Ben turned his face to the wall and closed his eyes. The thought of sharing his cruel journey, the loss of the woman he loved more than all in the world, was more than he could bear. Another day of travel brought Corwin, Ben and Matty to Christina's home in London. In a short time Ben was safely ensconced in a bed warmed with hot bricks, and Matty was below stairs cooking a meal she hoped he would be willing to eat. Corwin was seated in the front parlour when a footman announced that she had a visitor. A moment later Devon entered the room. I hope you will forgive this intrusion. It is important that I see you. You are more than welcome my lord. Please, sit down. Corwin gestured at a chair. How handsome he looked, dressed almost as he had been the first time she had seen him so long ago. Black breeches, waistcoat and greatcoat, snow-white shirt and his hair tied back with a black satin ribbon. He was the picture of an English lord. It was hard to believe this tall, broad-shouldered stranger had ever held her in his arms. I look quite the aristocrat, do I not? It seems I am still a rich man because I did not quite manage to kill Henry the first time around. You must not go to the green tomorrow. This will be ugly business. Worse than you have ever seen. There is no purpose in your attendance. My fate. Your fate. My brother's fate. My son's fate. And control of all the assets my family owns will be decided there. I shall be in attendance my lord. Think you that I can lose against a man who has never been in battle? Who has only ever had to fight one blade at a time? I am both affronted and touched that you think I am such a gentleman. I would warn you that nothing has ever gone as expected in this affair. Where is Norfolk now? Perhaps he will not even deign to meet you but will instead prevail about his kin to have you dragged to Newgate. He has spent the better part of a year announcing his intention to slit my throat to men about town. He fully expected me to return. Since he has sworn to half London that he will meet me at the Oaks and already has a line of seconds, I am inclined to take him at his word. Henry has acquitted himself very well on this particular field so I expect he will show. Corwin said nothing, studying him. He seemed different somehow, more relaxed than she had ever seen him even though on the morrow he might die. I cannot but think you underestimate him. I am a butcher milady. And he is a hog. But on the off chance you are right, I would like to see my son. Of course. He is sleeping. As tired from our journey as the rest of us, she rose and collected her child from his cradle near the fire. If he is like the men in my family, he will be tall. It is hard to believe that we all start out just a handful. I told Ben about my journey, said Corwin. I hope you told him all. There was never a way or a time to tell the tale. My thought was to bring him home alive and not let him die trying to kill me. 
Devon did not lift his eyes from his son's sleeping face. I know something of the journey he has been on. Most men are entirely destroyed by the cruelty of the cane plantations. They are used and starved until they drop dead in the fields. To survive a man must make a choice. You must either do what is right or you must embrace your hate and participate in the crime. He put the child in its cot. Ben could never do what was wrong, said Corwin. Such honor is both a blessing and a curse. This is why men like me live without it, he said frankly. Are you entirely without honor my lord? Are you sure? asked Corwin. Devon smiled a little. I am a titled lord, a wealthy man, with a loyal crew, and beloved son. Today I can afford a little honor. You and your brother share a madness that lets you have honor at every hour no matter the circumstance. I find it an astonishing thing. He gave Corwin a last long look then bent down to place a kiss on her forehead. Stay home tomorrow if you can bear it. I would not have you see me as I am. I should know the worst if we are to marry, she said softly. I should understand the hero, the villain, the lord and the pirate. As you know the girl, the woman, the wanton and the mother, there was a long moment as he considered her words. Well now I do feel a moment's fear. I have not lived a life so good as to allow God to make my every wish come true. Then my work is done. I mean you to take much care and come home to me safe tomorrow. A moment later Devon took his leave, striding from the room as if he were a demon king. Late in the afternoon Devon sat in his solicitor's office reviewing a draft of his will. It seems straightforward enough. Is it likely to be challenged? The old man squinted at him, shook his head. I cannot imagine who would have standing. If you were to die without making such arrangements, the property might revert to the crown for lack of an heir. As you warned my uncle repeatedly, said Devon, waving his hand to fend off the lecture. Indeed. And you are declaring that this woman's child is of your body. Without any doubt at all, should I not make a record of some kind telling how he came to be conceived? The old man looked away as if embarrassed. I do not think that will be necessary. Are you sure? If you and the mother affirm that the child is of your body, there is no bar to make. I trust she will do so. I am sure she will, said Black. Devon signed the document with a flourish using the title he had fought a lifetime for. He made a vow to himself that if he survived the day, he would ensure his family name came to mean something remarkable. Well my lord, your affairs are now entirely in order. The man gathered up the documents and placed them in a wooden box with a stack of deeds and trusts tied to the Kettering house. I look forward to a long and happy association. Nothing would please me more. If I survive my adventure on the green tomorrow I shall make arrangements to meet with you again very soon. Devon arrived shortly after sunrise, noting that more than a dozen carriages had surrounded the small glade in the large mist-shrouded field. The air was cold and dew-coated. Not a breath of air disturbed the hush amid the solemn trees. He saw Lord Benjamin Chase standing near Corwin on the far side of the glade. His second seemed unable to hold himself upright, and as Devon approached he could see that the man's eyes were hollow and his flesh was grey. He should not be here in the cold and wet. It was very likely to be the death of him. Corwin, on the other hand, stood poised and alert, watchful and waiting as if she would fight alongside him today. You should have allowed me to shoot him. For what benefit my lady? All of us would have been hounded from our homes and set adrift on the winds. Lord Norfolk thinks he can best me. Let us give him the opportunity to try. How he loved her he found himself thinking. It was such a simple thing. Love washed away the filth and ugliness of this world. It allowed a surrender to one's better self. It made one want to rise up and be worthy. Because he could love her, was permitted to love her, he was finally free. How on earth has it come to this? For Norfolk would have it no other way. He is a hollow man, my lady. 
He can feel nothing except the echo of misery and pain in others. He feels he is the only one in the world and the rest of us are shadows that he can sometimes make squeak and grimace. You have had reason to fear him in the past, but pity him now. This is the end of his life for no other reason but that he determined it to be so. He turned his attention to Lord Chase, whose face was now white and turned away in anger. There will be no trouble if Norfolk dies here. I am new to the ways of this place. Black asked by way of conversation. A man may settle his debts as he wills. You almost put him in his grave and thus he has called you to the green to settle the score. Except it is I who have chosen to challenge him here today. It is my honor, not his, that has been offended. That is not the word he has put about. A clatter came from behind him, and Black turned to find Norfolk emerging from a carriage. He was dressed with unusual simplicity, a red waistcoat, white shirt, black breeches and riding boots. He looked rested, confident, and completely at ease. Devon turned back to Corwin. Kiss me. He said, what? Here? She took a step back. If you love me and your child is mine, then you should demonstrate to all these assembled that this is so. Else, should I die, Henry will have it that he was your protector. Devon replied. She will appear a harlot if she behaves so. Ben's contempt was obvious. Lord Chase, she is an unmarried woman with a child. She can hardly look more disreputable. We should at least make sure that Henry is not thought her savior. Devon pulled her into his arms and brushed his lips against hers. He felt his blood sing at the touch. To his surprise she deepened the kiss, her body pressing against his, a cool hand coming to his cheek. He felt her breasts against his chest, her legs stirring beneath her gown. Christ, he wanted her here and now for all the world to see. It was hard to turn away and walk to where Norfolk waited for him, his steel blade already glinting in the pale sun. Aubrey stood beside him, there to ensure justice was done and to kill Henry if it became necessary. Chase might be his second in name, but Aubrey would stint at nothing to put things right. Adam lurked at the edge of the glade, two horses at the ready. Shall we? Devon asked Norfolk as he drew his sabre. It felt unfamiliar in his hand. How long since he had slaughtered a man with it? A year? As you will, Kerr. Norfolk replied. As instructed the two men took their positions and a patrician old man who looked to be Norfolk's servant gave the instructions. This was an affair of honor, a duel to the death and seconds were appointed should either man fail to provide full satisfaction. At the old man's word, the engagement began. True to his reputation, Norfolk was exceptionally fast and very well trained. He moved like a dancer and his first parry caught Devon unprepared. The attacking blade slid underneath Devon's rapier searching for his chest. To counter Devon jumped back and to the side, Norfolk followed the move smoothly and a moment later Devon found himself forced to step back again to avoid a slashing strike to his neck. Warding off this second blow he offered a counter thrust too fierce and fast for Norfolk to parry. Norfolk stumbled, missing two steps before he found his footing and could stand his ground. There was a pause as the two men, separated by more than a sword length, sized each other up. Black knew Norfolk would construe the battle as a war between speed and strength. In reality it was a battle between truth and a lie. Henry posed as a killer and Black truly was one. Devon felt his bloodlust wash over him and welcomed it. Permission to kill. Freedom to murder. Authority to end the reign of terror executed by this puffed-up lordling. He planned to send a message to him and all his kind that there was a difference between powdered dandies and real men. Black had time to wonder if this would be his last true fight. When he was a good man, was Corwin's mate, she would not give him much license to kill he supposed. Norfolk made his next attack, his blade striking not for Devon's chest but for his sword arm. Steel met flesh and Devon felt the skin open and blood gush, 
saw his fingers loosen. He caught his falling blade with his left hand. Such a pity. Norfolk was a few steps away, moving around Devon as if they were at a ball and this were part of some new step. I had expected so much more from the Black Earl. Norfolk stepped in again. His thrusts came thick and furious and Devon parried them awkwardly, picking up a few sharp jabs and new slices until Devon opened up a wound on Norfolk's right thigh. It was only a scratch, but it made Norfolk jump back. Devon initiated the next series of attacks, striking hard to ensure that Norfolk expended a great deal of strength parrying each blow. Even left-handed Devon was much stronger than the other man. Devon struck repeatedly in the same area until Norfolk began unconsciously turning his body to shield the area. Then, when one of Norfolk's parries came just a little late, Devon brought his blade across the inside of the man's opposite thigh. Muscle was exposed, but Devon's blade hadn't penetrated to the bone nor slashed an artery. This allowed Norfolk to respond with another, deeper strike to Devon's right forearm. Let us take a moment to bind our wounds before we proceed, my lord. I do not want you to faint before I can kill you, as you wish, said Norfolk. And perhaps you will want to take a moment for prayer since you will be meeting your maker soon. Devon walked toward his horse, his left hand holding the wound on his arm closed. It was hard to grasp his weapon, hard to close his fist around the haft of the blade. He reached into his saddlebag for a length of linen but before he could take it out Aubrey was beside him, binding the wound. Stop toying with the man, Aubrey said. The pair of wounds, once exposed, were much worse than Devon expected. The second had gone clear to the bone, just missing an artery. It was bleeding a great deal. We can't be about this all day, I met with my solicitor. Devon said. I have settled my estates on my son. It's entailed to my male heirs so that was a given. But the ship is entirely yours. Of course it is. And the crew too. They always have been. Do you think any of them truly trust you? You're a madman. Aubrey patted his arm. You have lost more blood than you would fooling about with this man. Let's put him down lest he get a lucky strike. The men do trust me. You're just the quartermaster. If they trusted you best you'd be the captain. Don't be ridiculous. You would make a terrible quartermaster. Anyone can be captain. Black shoved Aubrey back with a smile collected his sword from the ground, and strode back to the center of the glen. The grass was trampled and appropriately slippery with blood. Devon saw Norfolk's leg was bandaged and noted that he seemed confident of his success. Let us begin, said Norfolk, and he drove forward with a series of vicious thrusts. Black parried his strikes clumsily, making no attempt to counter-attack. As the blows came closer and closer to his chest, Devon found himself thinking that perhaps Norfolk would have been happier as a pirate. Clearly he liked to kill, Devon stumbled, left hand now apparently as weak as his right, and he let himself drop to one knee. Norfolk came in for the kill, Devon shifted suddenly forward, plunging his blade into Norfolk's belly, then angling it up through his heart and into his head. It was the cleanest kill he could imagine for the man, and it had taken some time and blood to contrive. He hoped Henry had no time to appreciate the effort he had expended. Norfolk's body fell upon Devon, showering him in blood and giving the assembled crowd a moment to believe it was Henry that had struck the killing blow. As Devon twisted his body around Henry, easing him onto the ground, he said, There now. You are free at long last. That evening, at his flat, Devon sat before his fire drinking Madeira. More than a year in his cellar had not harmed its flavor at all. In fact it was better than before, the place was still musty, having been opened up less than twenty-four hours ago and most of the furniture was still covered in sheets. He had not taken time to light any candles, preferring the solitude of darkness. His arm, 
stitched and rebandaged, ached unbearably. It seemed a good time to get drunk. He knew that Aubrey and his men were doing exactly that just a few streets away at a pub near where the ship was berthed. The knock at his door surprised him. It took him time to struggle to his feet, then to feel his way through the door and down the stairs. What he saw there was Benjamin Chase holding a pistol. You should be in bed, he said as he stepped back. Ben made no reply, just used the pistol to gesture at the stairs. Devon nodded and turned to obey his silent instruction. He heard Ben close the door and come slowly up after him. Devon returned to his seat before the fire, and waved a hand at the opposite chair. Please, make yourself at home, I have come to kill you. Ben said as he settled into the sheet-covered armchair. If a man had done to me what I have done to you and your sister I too would want him dead. Devon took another sip of Madeira. My sister has forgiven you. Ben wiped the back of his hand across his face. But you have destroyed me. I have endured offenses I can never forgive. Devon watched the fire burn in the hearth, wondering if Ben's words were true. After a long time he spoke. I understand. I cut Cain for many years and murdered more than one man to escape that living hell. I know the life you lived I believe. I can guess what you saw and what it cost you. Ben sat forward. You can never know. There was a woman. A native. She cared for me and I for her. I had to leave her on the far side of the world. I cannot even say she will survive because I do not know how far she can run from those animals who imprisoned me. I am broken in body and soul because you took my sister from me and I had to try to get her back. Devon sighed and shook his head. I was sold into servitude as a child, became the brute you see before you to survive. I blamed my uncle. I murdered him. It did not turn back time. Nothing does. But you are alive and the future is unwritten. You can take a ship and go find her. And are you not grateful that you were there to protect your woman when the moment came? She could have been destroyed when they took her captive. You gave her the opportunity to escape. If you had not gone looking for Corwin how could you have saved the woman you love? Devon sipped his drink and studied the man before him. Ben was broken in body and soul, but not only because of the abuse he had suffered. He was disheartened that such cruelty could exist in the world. That was the cancer that ate at him. My lord, I have no remedy for the horrors of this world except your sister. Somehow she has made me whole. Devon flexed his injured hand. His arm hurt. He should have killed Norfolk much more quickly. Making it look like a fair fight had seemed like a good idea at the time, but now it seemed like a painful mistake. We both know you deserve to die for a thousand crimes, said Ben rising. He leveled the gun at Black's head. If you want your revenge, take it. I hope it does you more good than it did me. He stared into the fire remembering all the years he had planned his revenge against his uncle as if killing him would fix everything that had been broken inside. After a very long time Ben lowered the weapon. Another death. More misery. And who am I to play God? Black said nothing as Ben sat down. Together they waited in silence for the world to become sane. When it didn't, Devon said. We should both play God. I hear my father was something of a philanthropist. He squandered his money on providing education to the children on our estates, wasted it on ensuring they had fresh water and more than enough food. My uncle killed him for the insult. I shall indeed play God by spending my father's money on many good works. Ben said nothing. Shall we go fetch your woman? We can go back to find her. I do not know that she could survive here. Look what has been done to us. I have no idea what to do or how to live the rest of my days knowing what I know now. Perhaps you might start by making yourself well. After a long pause Ben leaned forward. Give me the bottle. I need to get drunk. Black obediently moved forward to give him the wine. Christina let me in, said Devon by way of apology. 
He closed the door to Corwin's bedroom and moved to stand beside the bed. She said you were awake. Your son enjoys his morning meal with the sunrise, said Corwin. She carefully moved the sleeping baby away from her breast, and adjusted her clothing until she was decently covered. I have considered your proposal. Yes I will marry you. We shall have a house full of children and endeavor to live long and happy lives. I am very glad to hear that I am worthy to be your bride, she said as she reached up for him. Black took her in his arms and vowed he would never ever let her go. Corwin absently rubbed her belly to soothe the child that kicked inside. This one says you are a misguided madman, she said as she read the scandal sheet. It is common wisdom that a home for women and children only encourages husbands to abandon their responsibilities. And it is common sense that whoever wrote that deserves to starve to death like abandoned women and children so often do. Devon replied without looking up. He dipped his quill in ink and added another entry to a column full of numbers. At least it is better than last week's diatribe. In that one I was just trying to restore my unsalvageable honor. I thought that was the week before. Corwin folded the roughly printed pages and laid them on the table. She noted that her son was carrying the grey kitten about again. Aubrey, put the cat down. He does not want to be held. The two-year-old released the cat, squealing with glee as it ran away. A second later he had dropped to his hands and knees and was scrabbling after it across the carpet. At Corwin's gesture a maid collected the cat and the boy, then took them both to the nursery for warm milk. I dare say I should pack. We will have to get an early start in the morning. Corwin stood up. I don't know why Christina is marrying that scoundrel. A common tradesman no less, said Devon, turning to a new ledger. She deserves better. The women in our family are experts at reforming scoundrels. Christina and I share a great-grandmother who married a pirate after all, said Corwin, moving around the table to caress his shoulder. If that is a little girl you are carrying, you will be sorry you let her hear you talk that way. He put his pen down and shifted to put his head against her belly. Christina should marry a good man. A solid, trustworthy, kind and substantial man who will treat her well. That's exactly what a high-quality scoundrel turns into under the right kind of influence. Devon pulled Corwin into his lap and brushed his lips across the swelling mounds that pushed above her gown. And what is this influence you speak of my lady? I am afraid I must have a demonstration to confirm that it exists. Smiling, Corwin slipped from his lap and pulled him to his feet. She led him away determined to prove her point. This concludes Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. You can listen to more great audio fiction at audioiron.com. Please don't forget to rate our podcast. It helps others find our stories. Desire by Andrea Stewart. Voice recording copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music by Alexander Schweif licensed from Pond5. Visit audioand.com to find the best in audio fiction.